Well, if you have a bulletin, um, we actually print it out. It's a lengthy passage. I'm not going to get too much into the second chapter, <clears throat> but you are certainly welcome to follow along as we make points from this. But I want to want to open the message by telling you a story. You may or may not have heard of this, but there was a man whose name was David Carnes, and he worked as a senior accountant at a high-ranking firm in Wilton, Connecticut. He was living the good life. He was living a quiet life, and he was living a simple life. He had just purchased a brand new uh, Porsche 911, um, and he was enjoying his independence as a single man. Life was pretty simple for him. And then one morning, uh, on the television, along with his colleagues, he watched a second airplane crash into the World Trade Center on 9-11. And he was in shock. Um, he was a retired Marine staff sergeant of 20 years service in our nation. And so he knew instantly that America is under attack. And he even told his colleagues, he said, we're under attack. Um, this is big. This is huge. And so he sat stunned at his desk with his co-workers as they watched this. And he began to deeply be burdened and, and to wrestle with God in prayer because he knew those people there are going to need a lot of help. This is terrible. This is awful. Uh, and he began to ask the question, what can I do? I'm living the simple life. I'm living a good life. He was hundreds of miles away from ground zero where it happened. He was in Wilton, Connecticut. Um, and he's asking the Lord, wrestling, what can I do? I know God would have me do something. I know I have something that will be able to contribute to relieving the victims of this. He's a soldier. He's an accountant, sure, but he's also a soldier. So he told his colleagues that he was going to be gone. He didn't know for how long. And he got in his Porsche and he drove home and he threw on a pair of camouflage fatigues that had hung pressed in his closet because soldiers are prepared always, right? Um, and then he picked up some equipment at a storage facility he had rented because soldiers are always ready. And then he drove to his church and he met with his pastor and he prayed. He prayed, Lord, use me. I know you want me. He felt this overwhelming compulsion. He needed to drive up to ground zero. God wanted him to be there. And he said, Lord, please use me and help me um, to find some victims underneath that rubble. I know they're there. And so he put the top down on his Porsche and he drove uh, sometimes aggressive speeds up to 120 miles an hour. I don't know how wise that was. Um, but he arrived at ground zero by 5.30 p.m. Because he had his... Marine uniform on, and because he had the top down on the Porsche, the, uh, he was given instant clearance by the authorities there, and he was way through to be a volunteer. Um, and he, he wanted to go to the places where the rubble, there were still fires that were breaking out, and they wouldn't let any volunteers over there. He found another Marine, Sergeant Jason Thomas, and he said, have you been in the center where the, where the, where the worst collapse happened? And the guy said, no, and he said, let's go over there, man. I just got this impression we need to be over there. So they began walking, and for over an hour, they walked around, and they said, United States Marines, if you're down there and you can hear us, yell or tap. Yell or tap. For over an hour, they did that. And he thought for a minute that he heard this faint clicking, tapping, and yelling, and he said, we're here. Yell louder. And it turns out, you know, there were only 11 survivors that were pulled out from, from being buried alive in that rubble, and they found the last two. And they were Port Authority policemen who had wives and families at home that were begging God, praying for God to save their families. And I know a lot of other people did too. Don't get me wrong. Thousands of people were never uncovered. They were buried alive. Um, but those men were buried 20 feet below the surface. And so they begged. They said, please, your Marines, please don't leave us. And so Dave Carnes didn't. He stayed there. 
He stayed there. Those men had been trapped for over nine hours. They were injured very badly. They thought they may have to amputate some of their body parts even to get them out. And those two Marines had climbed over fires and mangled steel to get to those men. And he stayed there for nine hours. It took five men. Uh, they were trapped there nine hours. And it took five men nine additional hours to dig those two policemen, those port authorities, out. And Dave Carnes stayed with them the whole time. He rode in the ambulance with them. He spent the night at the hospital. And then the next day, he got up. He came back to the uh, Ground Zero wreckage site. And he spent eight days doing search and, and rescue operations. And then he got clarity. He said, I don't, I don't want to be an accountant anymore. And he joined, rejoined, re-enlisted with the Marines. And he did two tours of duty in Iraq because he knew, after all the images he watched on the TV, this burden was building up in him. This anger was building up. And he wanted to be part of the solution. He didn't just want to be sad. He didn't just want to be angry. He wanted to be a part of this bold vision to do something, to fix this, to correct this. And so that's what he did. He had a very heavy burden. He asked God the question, what can I do to help? And that led to a very strategic action. And God used him mightily to save lives, um, no doubt. Yeah, there was a movie. There he is on the left. And there was a movie made about him. It's pretty good, pretty, pretty decent movie my wife and I watched years ago called World Trade Center, and Nicolas Cage is in it, so you can check that out at some point. Um, but this message today is about a bold vision, and we're going to look at how Nehemiah, some of the things that Nehemiah went through parallel uh, what staff sergeant and senior ranking accountant uh, at, at a posh firm, Dave Carnes, went through. And so there's just three points in this message, three points today. Number one, heavy burden. Now remember, we're talking about bold vision. We're going to talk about God's vision for the Old Testament and for us as New Testament Christians, and also what kind of vision do we have for this church. And that's going to translate into three things we see in this text. One is a heavy burden. Visions don't come apart from heavy burdens. And number two, earnest prayer. You're not going to have a bold vision uh, that's part of God's vision if you don't engage in earnest prayer. Number three, a strategic plan. All three of those are going to go together in this passage. So, point one... Um, Heavy burden, heavy burden. This, uh, this is really interesting, and, and let me geek out and nerd out on you for a minute because you really need to know the context for this story. We just, we just landed, you know, we just rappelled out of um, a thousand feet up in the air and we landed in a book in the Old Testament some of you might not be that familiar with. But it's an amazing book and the Bible is never boring. And so let me tell you what was going on. In the Old Testament, God made a covenant promise with his people. He said, you obey me, you observe my laws, you walk in obedience, and I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to lavish you um, with goodwill, with power. I'm going to protect you. All the nations of the world are going to look to you in envy, and they're going to think, what an amazing God they serve. And God said, however, because the nature of our relationship is covenant, if you violate your terms of the covenant, if you abandon and betray the stipulations of this covenant, which was the Ten Commandments, we all know, he said, then I'm going to judge you, and I'm going to scatter you I'm going to banish you from your land, and I'm going to scatter you throughout the nations. Well, that's exactly what happened. As we know, Israel didn't keep God's law. Um, they committed spiritual harlotry, the Bible says. They played the harlot, and, and they worshipped the false gods and goddesses of all the pagan surrounding nations. And so, true to his word, God punished them. He chastened them, and he sent them into exile. And this is how it happened. In 722 B.C., the northern kingdom of Israel, whose capital was Samaria, the Assyrians came and, and ransacked them and drug them off in the exile. So the only kingdom left was the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, whose capital was Jerusalem, the holy city. Well, 130 years after Assyria captured them, 
um, the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom did the same thing, and guess who came and got them? The Babylonians. So now two different times, the Assyrians came, and the northern kingdom was banished, and then the Babylonians came, and the southern kingdom was exiled, and they were scattered all throughout the pagan land of Babylon. Okay? Jerusalem was uh, destroyed. The temple was burned to the ground. The gates and the wall were torn down all around Jerusalem. It was in shambles. It was a mess. It was a smoldering heap of ruin. And this was supposed to be God's holy city, where God placed His name, where His special presence had dwelt, where all the nations would look and say, look how amazing Israel is. Look how amazing God is. But because of their sin, there's just a smoldering rubble. God's people are in disrepute. The wall's broken down. They don't have a temple. They don't have a, a place of sacrifice, an, an altar. They don't have none of those things. Okay? And so this, this has been the story for over 70 years. And Nehemiah finds himself um, as one of the exiles. He's in a really strategic, advantageous situation. He is the cupbearer to the most powerful man on the planet. Because what happened eventually is uh, the Babylonians conquered the Assyrians, right? They were the world power. But then the Persians came and they conquered the Babylonians. So now the Persians are the kings of the world, right? And there's a king named Artaxerxes. We just read about him. And he's the most powerful man on the face of the planet. And one of the exiled Jews, whose name was Nehemiah, is his, his servant. He's the cupbearer. Have you ever heard that word before? It's just a fancy word and it means this. Nehemiah's job was to test all the king's food and drink to make sure it wasn't poisoned. How about that? How would you like that for a job, right? You would drink some of the best wine in the world, uh, but if there was poison, that'd be your last gig, right? But that's what he did. And listen, to be in that position, you had to be so trusted. The king had to be confident in both your loyalty and your uh, skill to be able to detect poison, right? I, I guess you would die. That would be the ultimate skill. If it was poisonous, you'd get sick and die, right? But think about this. Nehemiah is in the palace. He's living the luxurious life. He really is. He's 800 miles away from everything going on in Jerusalem, and he's probably a happy guy. But all of that changes, all of that changes with point number one, with this heavy burden. Check this out. I know she read this, but I want to reread just the very first part of this. Verse 1, now it happened in the month of Kislev in the 20th year as I was in Susa the citadel that uh, Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there, that means there's a small amount of people that survived the exile and are back in Jerusalem. They are there in the providence who have survived the exile and they're in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Okay, full stop here. Hit the pause button. So check this out. Nehemiah is in a place of great privilege. He's in a place of, uh, he's in a palace living the life of a king. Hundreds of, uh, hundreds of miles removed from the trouble, but yet he still cares. He cares enough to ask a question. How goes it in Jerusalem? How are God's people doing? How's the temple? How's the wall? How's the morale? How's the sacrifices going? He, he cared enough to ask a question. Listen, I want to tell you this, church. Bold visions come from, from very simple and strategic questions that we ask. Questions that we ask shape our destinies. They really do. And it shapes the destinies of our church. Because Nehemiah asked a simple question that led to a very heavy burden, that led to earnest prayer, 
that led to this incredibly strategic plan um, that led ultimately to a, a, the city of God being rebuilt. All of that started from one little question. Questions matter. Questions will help you evaluate what's important to you, right? We ask questions as a church. One of the questions we ask is, how can we bring the gospel to bear in a very broken area in southwest Volusia County? Did you know that question led to this church being planted? We said, how can we bring the good news to Volusia? We're over here in Ormond. What can we do? Well, we can get two knuckleheads named Jeff and Tommy, and we can gather together a very small remnant of families who are willing to do something radical, and we can all move over, and we can plant this church in this high school. Why? Because a lot of people are de-churched that live over there. That means they've been hurt by a church. And if we have a building in the beginning, it's going to turn them off. Anything that smells like church or religion, they're not going to want to come. Stained glass, steeple, pews, choir, big wooden pulpit, suit and tie, hanky, sweat and forehead. They're not going to go for it, right? So we wanted to remove any obstacle that was not a biblical obstacle, wasn't a commandment in the Bible. And that's why we came here and planted this church almost four years ago in 2015 in January. It's a very small question. Here's a broken area. We have good news. We have the ability to help them. What can we do? And that led to God doing some amazing things, and he still is today, right? We ask another question. Hey, Ireland is one of the least evangelized English-speaking countries in the world. What can we do? Patty Parks asked that question. In fact, she's been asking that for decades. And she said, I know what I can do. I can go over there, and I can be a missionary. And so our church asked the question, what can we do to help? We can send her. We can support her. Little bitty questions like that, right? And so Patty has served over there for two years. She's back now getting uh, you know, her reassignments to go back. She probably will be sent back. We're hoping and praying very shortly. Uh, we asked the question with the Holding and Becoming Counseling. How can we put solid, gospel-centered, uh, uh, Christ-powered, gospel-fueled counseling from the Bible into the hands of broken people in West Volusia County. And that, birthed, that, that burden that Melissa has carried for so many years launched Beholding and Becoming Counseling. And then she said, you know what? God's plan A is always the local church, so I want to partner with the local church. That's why B&B is always seeking to help raise up and train up churches to reach people through counseling. Simple little questions, right? Simple questions birth powerful, powerful movements. There's not a movement in the world today, whether religious or irreligious, that didn't start with a question. Martin Luther, we just celebrated Reformation Day, which also happens to be Halloween, right, on October 31st. You may not have known this, but there was a monk that was very concerned about his soul because he knew that the gospel is supposed to mean good news, but he just couldn't get any good news out of it the place he was living. He was a monk, and he had this heavy burden. He felt guilty and condemned all the time. And he said, man, I'm listening to the messages these monks tell me and these nuns tell me, uh, and, I'm, and I'm analyzing my own heart, and, and I'm terrified that God's angry at me and that he hates me and that I'm never going to be able to please him. And he began to read his Bible, and he began to pray, and he rediscovered the gospel that had been buried under layers and layers of tradition for centuries. So Martin Luther asked this question, how can a sinful person be right with a holy God? He asked a simple question. And it brought him to the answer of the gospel. And then he asked this question. How can I get this into the hands of everyday people who are confused by religion? And you know what that started? The Reformation, baby. That's what started it. It's this crazy little monk <laughs> that had this heavy burden. And then he asked, what can I do? Heavy burdens lead to earnest prayer that lead to strategic plans and change the world. You know, questions are important. They are. 
So that's what was going on with Nehemiah. He asked this question. How are the people doing in Jerusalem? And they're not doing well. The city's not doing well. The people aren't doing well. The walls are torn down. They're in great distress. And listen, you've got to remember this. God's vision for Israel, do you know what it was? It was to reflect the greatness of God. It was to show how majestic, how glorious, how good God is. Israel was to be God's representative on the earth. See, Adam and Eve originally were supposed to be, but Adam failed in his task, right? He failed, he sinned, he rejected God's, God's goodwill for him. So then God called Israel. And how did Israel do? Well, Israel was failing, right? They were supposed to be the city on the hill. All the nations were supposed to come to Israel and fall on their face and say, God is amazing. But now, the central strategic capital city where God's name was to dwell was, was in ashes, and Nehemiah was burdened for that. And listen, we need to look at the church today, not just our church, but the church at large, and say, um, what's going on with the church today? You know, is God's vision being reached? Because we're his ambassadors. We are God's plan A. There is no other plan A. The church is it. We are it. We are the called out ones, the ecclesia. He's called us out and separated us, and we bear the message of the gospel to all the nations. And Nehemiah in the Old Testament knew that was Israel's task. And how are they doing? They're not doing good. And so look, this question that he asked led to this heavy burden. Now check this out, guys. This is so interesting to me. This is what happened. Verse 4. Look at verse 4 with me. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. See, here's the problem that we have, not, not just as American citizens today in, in 2018, but as Christians in the church, this is what happens. We get news coming at us so fast. It happens so fast. We don't have time to let this burden just overwhelm us and take it to God in prayer. We don't. He heard this in Hebrew. It, you know, you've heard, man, that, was, that floored me. Maybe this is where they get it. In Hebrew, it was, he was floored. He sat down. He heard this news. He was so disturbed by it, so bothered, so alarmed and unsettled by what was going on hundreds of miles away from him by his brethren that had survived the exile in Jerusalem. He sits down. He probably tears his clothes, which was a Jewish sign of grieving and mourning. And he mourned and he wept for days. It says he wept. So often the things we cry about, they're just all about us. When was the last time we wept and mourned over something that had nothing to do with us? That's what's going on with him. He's in the palace. He's got it made. He's living the posh life, drinking the best wine, some of the most prestigious fellowship. He asked a simple question. How's it going with the church, pretty much, okay, parallel? In Jerusalem, they said, the church is it's torn down, bro. It's not there. All the enemies of God are blaspheming God. They're pointing the finger our people are shamefaced. They're being held in derision. There's no witness in the world, Nehemiah. There's no witness. Jerusalem is in ashes. He's floored. He sits down. He begins to weep. But it, see, when, when bad news hits us, we don't have time to process it. Because listen, you and I are conditioned today. We are conditioned. It's the cultural air we breathe to go from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next. I was telling my wife this morning, I said, just the other day, just, just yesterday as a matter of fact, I'm looking at my news feed on my computer, and the first thing that comes is, um, teenage boy in Florida strangles his mother to death after an argument they got in over a D grade that he got in school. Cho that's in DeBerry, just so you know, that's local news. He choked his mom to death over an argument uh, over a bad grade, choked her to death. 
very next headline. See, that's headline one, and I'm still processing this. Oh, my word. That happened. A teenage kid got so angry at his mother, he wrapped his hands around her neck and killed her in her own bed at night. Thought she was dead, went to get a wheelbarrow. I'll spare you all the details, okay? I read that. I'm still processing this. I'm still like mourning for this family. What a nightmare. What are the ramifications for this? And the very next headline is, um, early voting in Tennessee triples because of what Taylor Swift did to encourage her constituents or something to that effect. Now, I'm not making a comment politically. I'm just saying it wouldn't matter what it is. It wouldn't matter what the next headline is. They don't give us time to process that. We're getting a million things thrown at us at once. One may be a headline, and the next, the, the next one may be a punchline, right? We don't have time to process. We don't have time to just sit and let bad news sometimes just settle in our hearts so we can really pray and say, God, this makes me very sad, and this makes me very angry, but I know that there's a reason you brought this news to me. I know there's something you want me to do about this. You want me to be a part of the solution. You want me to wrestle with you like Dave Carnes did in his office that day. You want me to wrestle with you and say, Lord, use me. Use me to, to be a solution, to be a part of, of, of the fix, of the correction. But we don't. We're not conditioned that way. And listen, I'm part of the problem just like you probably are. Because I let the culture condition me. I'm scroll we're scrolling, we're scrolling, all the time scrolling. And you say, well, I'm not on Facebook. Well, good. that's probably a good thing. You're not. But it doesn't matter. If you have a TV, the same thing. You may get a commercial that says 75% of Americans are obese, and the very next commercial is an ad for Arby's barbecue sandwich, okay? It does, no matter where you go, it's going to get you. You say, well, I don't have a TV. That's awesome. Do you have a car? Do you drive? You drive down the interstate? No lie. I was driving down 95. It's probably years ago. I saw one, I saw a billboard on 95 and it said uh, Powerball up to one point something million dollars. And I was like, man, a half mile, which if you're going 70 or 80, <laughs> happens really fast, right? Very next headline, it said a gambling addiction hotline. I'm not, I'm not kidding you. This was in Florida on I-95. That's just a very tiny window into what's happening in our hearts. Because cult, listen, we're conditioned, guys. Our culture is shaping us, and it's not good. What we're seeing is not good. Because when, when God's wanting to use a church to do something, we're just so scatterbrained. We're so, our, our emotions are so fickle and up and down and all awash. We don't have time to really process and be heavily burdened like Nehemiah did. He sat down. He was burdened. This weighed on him heavily. And it all started with this little question that he asked that led to this burden. That happens in social media all the time. He was broken when he heard this news. He was sad. And listen, that's good. It's a good thing. It's a good thing um, to let some sad news wash over you. A.W. Tozer said this. He said, It is very unlikely whether God will use a man or a woman greatly until he hurts them deeply. See, Nehemiah was hurt by this news. He was broken by this news. And he was burdened by this news. Do we weep? This is my question. Are we weeping? Are there things that are breaking God's heart that are breaking our hearts too? What are the things that we're weeping about? What are the things we're asking questions about? That says a lot about where our heart is at. There's things that I look around in the culture, and even in central Florida, and it just breaks my heart to see it. It breaks my heart to see the brokenness of this area, the addictions and the enslavements and families that are just crumbling. And I see the same statistics that you do. 
And it breaks our heart and we want to weep and we want to ask God, what do you want us to do about this? What do you want us to do about this? You know, hunger and poverty are serious. Those are serious things here. And that's why as a church, we're asking the question, Lord, what can we do to help feed the hungry around here? That's why, that's why Diane has helped us partner with the Community Life Center. Because some churches you're a part of, they have a gazillion ministries. They're like the guy with the spinning plate. You ever seen that act at the circus? He's got the spinning plate, and he does this spinning plate, and then this spinning plate, and the church is keeping all these. I've never wanted to be a church that had a thousand or even a hundred ministries. I've wanted to be a church that recognizes organizations in the community that are already meeting legitimate needs in a way that honors God, and just partner with them if we can. You know how we bring food here and ship it over to the Community Life Center? Because they're doing it really well over there. And we don't have to create our own food pantry here. We couldn't anyway. We're in high school. We meet here three hours a week. So we're asking questions like that. How can we help feed the hungry? Uh, our hearts are broken over the poverty here and the people that you see begging. What can we do? Um, we're asking other questions like, okay, the pregnancy, uh, surprise unwanted pregnancies on the rise, always on the rise. What can we do? And th- this, is, this may be another sermon, but just consider this. What a lot of people want to do um, is get really angry and boycott and picket. And I understand there's a time and there's a place for that. I'm sure that there are. Um, maybe abortion clinics and the doctors and all of that. Uh, there's some other Christians that say, you know what? I want to be a part of the solution. Uh, what about these moms that are really on the fence? Like, you know what? I could keep the baby, I guess, if I had help. If somebody could support me, I could have the baby. I could put it up for adoption. I could let somebody foster care. Or maybe if there was a center that could sit down and, and provide sound wise counseling to people who are about to have a baby that didn't want to, didn't expect to. Well, it turns out there is a center. It's the Pregnancy Crisis Center about 100 yards from this building, and that's why we partner with them, because they're already doing it really well, and we believe in the work that they're doing. And those are just little tiny examples, hopefully, that, that share with you a little bit of our vision. We want to reach this community, and we want to help this community, and God's giving us ways that we can, some of which are already in existence, that we can just support. But the biggest vision we have is how can we be a light and a beacon for the gospel? How can we bring hope to people who are broken? How can we get the good news of the gospel and saturate this entire community? Because that was Nehemiah's burden. Jerusalem was supposed to do that, and it was burned to the ground. So he asked a simple question that led to a heavy burden that, check this out, led to what? Earnest prayer. It led to earnest prayer. This is what floors me about this story. If you look in the very first verse of chapter 1, it says it's in the month of Kislev. Okay, in the month of Kislev, that's when he heard the bad news. Instantly, he weeps, he mourns for days, uh, not Facebook style, not for two minutes, and then he scrolls to the next thing. Uh, but look at, look at chapter 2. In the month of, I want to say Nisan, but that's, that's the van I drive. That's not the month on the Persian calendar. Um, <laughs> you know how, how far apart those two things are? Four months. Don't you love the Bible? Every word is is critical in the Bible, right? Every word's inspired, every word's important. Four months on the calendar year went by um, before Nehemiah really took action. In between those four months, you know what he was doing? You know what Nehemiah was doing? Praying. He was beseeching God, begging God, Lord, use me. This makes me sad. This makes me angry. Here I am. I'm a cupbearer. Is this what you called me to do, God? Am I supposed to stay in this palace the rest of my life, living the simple good life? While all my brothers and sisters are languishing in Jerusalem, I'm sitting here and I'm, I'm, I'm the advisor to the most 
powerful and important man on the face of the planet right now, but he's a pagan. He doesn't believe your promises. He doesn't respect you. Lord, use me. Do something. And, and this is what he did. He began to pray. Look at verses 5 through 11. I just want to read this. Listen to this prayer. Listen to this prayer. This is a great pattern prayer, just like the prayers of, you'll read, of Daniel and of Moses. Listen to how he takes ownership for what's going on with his people. Check it out. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven, and I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which, what's that word? We. We have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. See, the first thing he does is he goes to covenant. He talks about you're a covenant-making, you're a covenant-keeping God. And he says, but we are a covenant-breaking people. And we've acted corruptly, we've acted unjustly, we're all to blame. All of us share some of the blame and Lord, you are perfectly just and righteous in everything you've done. Leveling your city, leveling the temple, letting the enemies of God come and destroy the walls, and then exiling us. You did exactly what you said you would do, and it's our fault. But look at the next line here. He says, verse 8, Remember, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you. But, verse 9, If you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and I will bring them to the place that I've chosen to make my name dwell there. That's the vision of God for his people. Always has been and always will be. He's saying, Lord, remember, you said if we return, if we repent, if we confess our sin, if we repent, that you will cause your name to dwell where we gather in your holy city of Jerusalem. Verse 10, they are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, verse 11, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Do you, see his, do you see his prayer, just the pattern of it? He is confessing his sin. He's repenting personally and corporately for Israel. He's reminding God you're a good God. You keep your covenants. You make your covenants. Do what you said you would do, God. Do what you said you would do. You have great power and majesty and you are able to do whatsoever you see fit to do and use me to do it. Nine different times throughout the book of Nehemiah. We don't have time to go look at all of them. Nehemiah was a man of prayer. And guys, check this out. Nehemiah is not a prophet. Did you guys know that? He's not a prophet. This is not a prophetic book, okay? Ezra was the prophet that helped lead the charge to rebuild the temple before Nehemiah ever came on the scene. Nehemiah is not a prophet, he's not a priest, and he's certainly not a king. You know what he is? He is a radically ordinary guy that found himself in a very strategic position serving the most powerful man on the face of the planet. He's a politician, really, if you want to know the truth about it. Cupbearers became advisors to the kings because, listen, if you had a cupbearer, you trusted him with your life, right? You had to. He got your back. It's, it's interesting, the history here. This is King Artaxerxes. His father, Xerxes I, he was assassinated by somebody that somehow slipped, in his, slipped into uh, his, his circle of influence uh, and killed him in his bedroom at night. So don't you know that he had to trust this Jew, 
who was part of an original group of enemies to the Persians. He trusted Nehemiah with his life. So Nehemiah is not a prophet, a priest, or a king. He's just a radically ordinary dude or lady, just like you and me. And he's heavily burdened. He asks a simple question, and he's praying to God, Use me, Lord. It's one thing to be angry about something you see. It's one thing to, to vent your spleen and to register your complaint. It's something entirely different to say, Lord, use me to be a part of the solution. This is what's interesting to me. Nehemiah could have said, Lord, uh, had this king send in armies, had this king send in a building crew, a construction crew, it could have happened easily. Artaxerxes had all the resources anybody could ever need. But he says, Lord, use me, send me, like somebody else that, that we remember. Isaiah, here I am, send me. He's praying that God would use him. This is earnest, uh, heart-searching prayer. And Nehemiah is, listen, he's a type A. You don't get in that position without being a type A. He's decisive, he's strategic, but four months, guys. Think about that. When's the last time you really meditated on a problem and took it to the Lord for four straight months and said, God, help me to plan wisely, help me to think clearly, help me to consult wisely, because there's safety in a multitude of counselors, and then help me to act courageously. No, man, we, we're, we're conditioned to bam, 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 right? One news line to the next, and then go on to the next thing. No, he's mourning, he's fasting, he's praying, he's crying. This is really interesting. One of my favorite verses in the whole Bible is in Second Chronicles. I think I may have a slide up for it. This is one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9. It says this. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth, seeking to show himself powerful or strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. That is a, that's a radical proclamation. If you think about it, same God we serve today, guys. His, you know what God's looking for? He is looking for a group of people that he can show himself powerful on their behalf. That's literally what God is looking for. He's seeking that. His eyes go through, in, in, uh, in Hebrew, the, the idea there is quickly. He's searching fervently. He wants to find people whose hearts are loyal toward him so he can show them, this is how big of a God I am. This is how powerful I am. This is how mighty I am. Part of that verse used to bother me because it says, whose heart is loyal. Well, who has a loyal heart? If God's looking for loyal people to show himself strong, I'm never going to see his strength because <laughs> I'm flawed. I'm deeply flawed and I'm a sinful human being. But listen, that's not exactly what that verse, the thrust of that, of that text. You know what that passage is saying? Talking about loyalty and prayer. People that are looking to God, trusting in God and asking God for help. Those are the people that are begging him, show us your power. Show us your power. And God's on board with that. That's our vision for God to show himself powerfully on our behalf, that just happens to be his vision too. That's good news, isn't it? God wants to show himself powerful in your life, in my life, and in the life of this church. And that's what Nehemiah was praying earnestly about for four months. And you'll see if you know this book, God answered that prayer in a radical way. In a radical way he did. He was praying expectantly. William Carey is the father of what we would call the modern day mission movement. And he had this saying, he would say this, Ask great things from God. Now, let me say it this way. He said, attempt great things for God and expect great things from God. Say it one more time. Attempt great things for God and expect great things from God. That's what 
William Carey did, which is what Nehemiah was doing. Nehemiah was praying, and he was strategizing. This is, this is really astonishing. Um, he says, give me, look at the very end of his prayer here. Verse 11, and this is going to transition into the next point, okay? O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name, and give success to your servant today, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now, I was cupbearer to the king. Man, this is so amazing, guys. The last part of this prayer, he's, he's, if you're the reader and you don't know this story, you're just like, who's this Nehemiah guy? And what's he doing? He says, by the way, I'm the cupbearer to the king, and I need God to grant me success because I'm about to ask this king something really radical. That no cupbearer really has any business asking a pagan king. I'm going to do it. I'm going to go for it. God, please give me success. I love the way he, he frames this prayer. And by the way, this is the last point, a strategic plan. Look at the way he frames his prayer. Give success to your servant and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Did you love that? This is man. Who is this? This is Artaxerxes. The Persians worshipped him as a god. He was a deity, the most powerful man on the face of the planet. And Nehemiah is praying to the king of kings and he says, help me with this man, this man, this piece of clay that you created that happens to sit on a throne of the most powerful empire the world has ever seen and has conquered your people and has conquered the Babylonians who conquered your people and has conquered the Assyrians who conquered your people. He's just a man. He's just made out of dirt. But he's a powerful man and he can make things happen. So I'm going to you. That's so interesting to me that Nehemiah goes to the king of kings before he goes to the human king made out of clay, right? The Plato figure. He's, he's strategizing. For four months he's been praying. And I know so often Christians... Maybe we're good at praying, but it never goes beyond that. That, that. that prayer never turns into planning and to strategy and to action. Nehemiah is doing both. He's thinking very strategically, how can I be a part of the solution for rebuilding this wall around Jerusalem? He's thinking down to the brass tacks, like what materials do I need? You're going to see this in a minute. In fact, let's read this. This is part two here. In the month of Nisan, in the, or Nisan, Nisan, sorry, not Nisan. In the month of uh, Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, man, I could say so much about this. Why did he wait until wine was before the king? Well, because the king had a buzz and he'd beaten us. That's not it. <laughs> what he's saying here is the king would remember how important you are to him, how trusted you are to him every time you sample his wine and you say, it's good, I survived. He's like, you know what? I need to keep this guy around. He's valuable, right? So, so, not only is Nehemiah bold, but he's wise. He's a careful thinker, isn't he? I took up wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had never been sad in his presence. Just stop right there for a minute. If you were in exile and you were serving, serving the pagan king who was responsible for your exile, you'd think you'd have a stiff bottom lip when you were serving him. You'd be angry. You'd go on Facebook rants and put pictures on your Instagram poking fun at the Persian king. You probably would. Nehemiah? Uh-uh. Never before, ever had he been sad in the presence of the king. One, because you could die, right? You could forfeit your life. If you read the story of Joseph, the butler and the baker in the story of Joseph were kicked in prison for having bad attitudes. One of them was, got his head cut off. I had never been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then, verse 2, I was very much afraid. He was afraid here. That word means I'm petrified, I'm shaking. What's going on? Oh, he's about to do something radical here. Don't you love this, the suspense? He's about to do something. Why is he afraid? Well, several reasons. Number one, 
If you're sad in the presence of the king and you represent bad news, the, the king can, can execute you, right? But secondly, what he's about to ask Artaxerxes to do is to actually reverse a law that had already been put in place. You can read about it in Ezra chapter 4, verses 7 through 9. See, Artaxerxes had shut down. He had already shut down about 12, 13 years earlier the rebuilding of the wall because it was a threat to his kingdom. Somebody had reported it was going on unauthorized and he shut it down. So the law of the Medes and the Persians, the nature of those laws, you didn't overturn them. Nehemiah knew. I'm about to ask this king to turn over a law that he had set in place decades ago. And he's afraid. He's shaking. So what's he do? Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's lives, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? Man, don't you love this? And he starts fumbling around, well, well I didn't, I didn't, I don't know, let me think about it. You know, I hadn't, I didn't think you would, I didn't think God would answer my prayer actually, so let me go out and write up a proposal that's not Nehemiah. Nehemiah had been thinking about this for a long time. He knew exactly what he would need. But check this out. Don't you love this? He's in the presence of the most powerful man on the face of the planet. And this king has just asked him, open invitation, what do you need from me? That would like, that would be like a billionaire saying, hey, Tommy Clayton, what do you and Grace Life Church want? <laughs> well, I thought you'd never ask. <laughs> but what does he do? Before he answers, what does he do? Look, he prays. Oh, I love this, man. So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, well, where's this prayer? Well, this is just one of those SOS prayers, you know? He just fires it off into heaven. Lord, please, God, my tongue, help me. And if you're like, yeah, he was one of those people. No, you see the his prayer life was already demonstrated to you in chapter 1, right? He's been praying and fasting and mourning. But just to make sure that he, he remembers he's dependent on God, he fires off another SOS and then he answers. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, would you please send me to Judah, to the, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it? And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside me, some people think that was Queen Esther. That would have been Artaxerxes' stepmother. Interesting. A Jew. A Jew. And God's providence, perhaps, sitting next to the most powerful man on the planet. Maybe that's why the Holy Spirit inspired that little parenthesis here. By the way, Queen Esther was sitting right beside this king. She's going to have influence on her stepson, right? How long, verse 6, And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How gone will you be? How long will you be gone? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's force, that he may give me timber to make the beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked. Wow. <laughs> a little bitty statement. That's it. You did it. God answered your prayer, Nehemiah, and then he, he gives God glory. For the good hand of the Lord my God was upon me. Isn't this amazing? The most powerful man on the face of the planet grants him everything he needs. He, he had detailed, strategic requests ready, ready for the king. I need timbers from the forest of Lebanon that you're in control of. Uh, I need protection. Uh, I need permission. He need, all this stuff he had planned and prepared in his mind, and God granted his prayer. That was, that was his strategy. Um, Derek Kidner, he wrote a commentary on this book, and 
Let me pull this quote up. He said this. I love this. He says, If we are impressed with the realism and the boldness of Nehemiah's request, so too was the king. Don't you love that? You're like, man, that is so bold of you. Yeah, exactly. And that's the point. He's asking some big things from this king. You know why? Because he'd been asking big things from God. He said, you are a big God. You can do anything. And this, the heart of this man made out of clay right beside me, who, who my life can be forfeit. If my breath stinks, he could kill me. Okay? His heart is in your hand, Lord. And you turn it wherever you want. You can turn it wherever you want. You can give me favor, magnanimous favor with him. Or you can shut this operation down, but God knows this. This is for your name. This is for your kingdom. This is so that your city can be rebuilt. So the walls, walls were important back then. Walls not only provided protection and gates were important cultural centers of a city where uh, judgments were made and decisions were made and leaders gathered. But walls did not also just provide protection. It it provided distinction. Israel at this point in time in, in history, you couldn't tell them apart from the world. They were all blended together. And Nehemiah knew God had always wanted his people to be set apart. Not so they could be pharisaical and self-righteous, but because he wanted uh, the light to shine on top of the hill so everyone could see this is how God's people live. They have laws that separate them that they keep. And there's joy there. There's freedom there. And that was his burden. So he says, if we were impressed with the realism and the boldness of these requests, so too was the king. So you say, well, why are you, why are we talking about Nehemiah and what's this got to do with our vision? Because look, when churches start talking about the future, uh, they usually start talking about mission and they usually start talking about strategy. Mission and strategy are important, guys. They are. But those are only questions that answer the what and the how. Okay? What are we hoping to do uh, and how are we going to do it? That's mission and that's vision. There's a deeper question that's more important that we as a church really need to start asking ourselves, and it's why. It's not the what, and it's not the how. Because listen, people argue over that. Pastors disagree over that. Congregations split over the what and the how. What unites people and what's more important and deeper is the why. The why reunites everybody. And so our church is thinking about the future. We're thinking about the future, and we're excited. Uh, We're going into our fourth year. And we're asking ourselves the why question. Why are we here? We are here to be good news headquarters. Why are we here? We are here to reach this dark and, and, and broken area with the good news of Jesus Christ. Um, why are we here? We, we are here and we want our children and our grandchildren and the next generation to be able to lead this church into the future where it needs to go, right? Some of us are getting gray hair. Some of us had no hair. And we want to think long-term for this church. I want Grace Life Church to be here a long time after I'm gone. We want to start strategically planning for the future, okay? And that means we're asking questions like, is this, do we believe that it's God's long-term will for us to continually rent this high school and stay right here? And as leadership, as we're asking this question, we're in agreement. No, it's not. In fact, when we moved here, 2015, it was with the desire within a very short time to be in a building. We already had the building uh, picked out, but that that didn't work out. God had other plans. Uh, Sometimes God says no. Sometimes he says yes. Sometimes he says not right now, right? Uh, But we're re-asking that question because we're convinced that for all the perks and the benefits and the blessings of being able to rent a high school, and there's a lot of them, lots of them that we'll, we'll talk about at some point in the future, there's also some cons, 
there's also some, some, some setbacks. You know, number one, we want to have our own place. That's in the Bible. God's people meeting in God's place under God's rule, uh, enjoying God's blessing. And that may sound like, well, what are you talking about? Hang on. God's people, it's about the people, not the building. That's true. But at the same time, um, a theology of place in the Bible tells us that, hey, we're souls, but we have bodies, don't we? <laughs> we have something to permanently dwell in while we're here and we're alive. And it enables us to do a whole bunch of good in the world, right? To have bodies. Well, our church wants a building. There's things we want to do throughout the week. We want to be able to invest and do training. We want to be able to have a permanent brick and mortar where people can drive by and say, hey, look, that's, that's Grace Life Church. They're there. That's their building. They meet there. They gather there. They do training there. There's a counseling center there. Maybe at some point there will be a food pantry and a building. But we're starting to ask those questions, and we're starting to see that there's limitations if we stay here long term. We're seeing that the churches that grow uh, in Volusia County, especially southwest Volusia County, there are churches that prioritize families, and they have things for children, and we want to have more things like that. You know, we've got about 40 or 50 children in just a few short years. They're going to be teenagers. We want to have more things for them, guys. We want to be able to gather them together with their families um, and strategize and disciple and, and, and pour into their little lives. There's a lot of things that we want to be able to do that we think uh, there's going to be restrictions but we've waited, we've prayed, we've tried to save our money. Um, and now the, the question is back on the table. In fact, some of us, maybe you got wind or maybe you saw it. Some of us, some of our, um, just some, some strategic people in the church, we went and looked at some property over in Orange City last Sunday. We're just starting to dream. We're just starting to pray. We're starting to look around. We're starting to have a conversation. But the reason I wanted to talk about Nehemiah is because Nehemiah's vision was God's vision. It was the why question. Lord, you want there to be a place where your name can dwell, where your people can abide, where uh, you can be messengers to the world, where there could be a beacon of hope. Um, and that's what we want. And this church, this church, this building has served us really well. And the good news is there's no, there's no rush. We can stay here as long as we need to be here. But at the same time, God's starting to move and he's starting to work. Uh, the vision that I have for this church, and I believe it's God's vision because it's in the Bible, is that we need to have a leadership in this church that reflects the New Testament pattern. And the Bible's very clear on who the leaders are in the church. And it's a group of qualified men that we call elders. And you say, yeah, where are those guys? Well, I'm the only one right now, right? I'm an elder and Jeff was an elder and we sent Jeff. By the way, that's another question we ask. How can we, how can we maximize our efficiency as a church and reach as far as we can? And that question back in 2018 was we send Jeff and five families over to Ormond Beach. That was, a, that was the why question. It was hard. It hurt. Those were families who tithed. They were families who served. Uh, and there's a gap here. But that was the right thing to do because it was part of our vision, right? Um, but Jeff was the only other elder. And so I'm the, I'm the solo elder. I'm Han Solo here, right? Um, but we have qualified men that we've been meeting with and praying with. And very soon we're going to appoint two other men. So there'll be an odd number, three elders so that we can move forward and when we make decisions we believe it's the decision making process that God's going to honor and we're going to invite our congregation um, to give input as well because listen before you buy into something I think it's important that you weigh into something right um, and the why again the why question is the question that's going to unite a church like Grace Life so I'm, I'm telling you all of this because I want you to pray with us Okay, pray strategically for this church. I have never been more excited. I know you look around and we're, we're a small group of people, but listen, guys, 
We're God's plan A. God could have assembled uh, 500,000 professionals in Tuvalusha County, County if he wanted to, uh, to do his work here. But he didn't. You know what he chose to use? Small, strategic, little churches like Grace Life who have a vision and who are guarding themselves from drifting from their mission. Our mission is to be the insiders for the outsiders. That's always been our mission. And I, by God's grace, I always want that to be our mission, right? And so it's a bold vision that God's given us, uh, but I believe it is from the Lord. And I want to ask you to pray with us, uh, be excited with us, dream with us, and we're going to see where God takes us. In fact, this Wednesday, I know we have three, we have three community groups that meet in three different cities, um, one in Osteen, one in Deltona, and one in Deland. And we're asking those leaders, if they would, let this week be a time when we gather. We're going to gather on Wednesday night. I'll say that after the service here in our announcement time. We're going to gather at the Nugent's home, and we're just going to pray. We're going to pray for all the needs in our church. We're going to pray for the future. We're going to pray for God to give us wisdom. We're going to pray for our elders that we're moving toward ordaining, um, that God would just be with us and keep his hand on our church. This is an exciting time to be part of Grace Life Church. It's an exciting time to think about what the future holds for us. And I believe God has blessed us, and I believe He wants to continue to bless us. And I'm excited to, to be the pastor. Um, Nehemiah, let me close with this, okay? And then we're going to move into our Lord's Supper. Nehemiah was taking a risk, wasn't he? He could have been executed for approaching the king and asking that bold request. Uh, he risked his life. But listen, somebody else didn't just risk their life. They gave their life. Jesus gave His life. He didn't just risk it. He gave it for us. And the walls, think of this. Those walls that Nehemiah went to rebuild, and he did. He rebuilt. We'll, we'll return to this later at another time um, and maybe do a series in Nehemiah when we maybe get to a place where we're ready to go to a building. We all have to work. That'd be a great book to go through, right? To unite everybody. But Nehemiah was a part of an amazing building project that broke records. I think within 43 or something odd days, they built that wall. All the enemies, there was opposition without, there was opposition within, but he did it. And those very walls God would use to keep a, a city, Jerusalem, protected from outside pagan influences, for families to be able to move there and raise up lineage after lineage, bloodline after bloodline, and finally the Messiah would be born to a Jewish family because the, the, the bloodline had been protected in Jerusalem. And that young man named Jesus Christ grew up, and one day he rode a donkey into that city to the shouts of, Hosanna God, Hosanna God, save us. And within two or three days' time, he turned around and he carried a cross outside those same walls that Nehemiah built. He went outside the walls to the jeers of a crowd that was saying, crucify him. Days earlier, they were saying, Hosanna God, save us, save us. And three days later, they were saying, crucify him. He drug a cross outside those city walls and he hung between two thieves and he gave his life for you and for me. That's what Jesus did. That's the greatest and the most bold vision that God had was to send His Son to die for sinners like us. And that's why we celebrate every first Sunday. We celebrate communion so that we never forget that. So let's pray.